0: This episode was supported by the International Women's Media Foundation's Reproductive Rights Reporting Fund. A written version of this story appears online and in print in The Nation. Welcome to ACCESS, a podcast about abortion. I'm your host Garnet Henderson. I first heard from Kristen Smith in December of 2021. She wrote me an email with the subject line Abortion at 27 weeks.
1: My name's Kristen Smith. I live in West Virginia. I'm a stay-at-home mom. I have three kids. In May of last year, I found out I was pregnant with my fourth. It was an accident, but we quickly got excited for it and we found out it was a boy and everything was perfect and healthy, just like my other three pregnancies. But when I went to my 20-week ultrasound, I found out that he had a rare abnormality. It's called fetal bladder outlet obstruction. Basically, just an extra piece of tissue grew in his urinary tract and prevented all of his urine from um, coming out. He had no Amniotic fluid. His kidneys and his bladder were extremely dilated. He had um, very severely under underdeveloped lungs. Just a host of problems.
0: Kristen's story is the type of abortion story that gets exceptionalized. She had a wanted pregnancy and then found out that something was very, very wrong. To many people, this is a quote unquote good reason to get an abortion, whereas other reasons might not be considered as good. But Kristen doesn't want her story to be seen that way.
1: It's really eye-opening to have went through this, and uh, I just hope this can show people that—I mean, not just my story, but I mean every story—that abortion is healthcare. It is needed. It saves lives, even if not physically like me. Why? Why would anybody want someone to go through a mental struggle? Who is anybody to? to put their own beliefs on another person's body.
0: And the thing is, Kristen's sympathetic story didn't help her. As you'll hear, she was denied an abortion even when she ended up in the hospital with serious complications. In the end, she had to scrounge up funding from three different abortion funds and drive six hours while bleeding to get an abortion. In many ways, she isn't unique, because this is something that a lot of people have to do already, especially when they need abortions later in pregnancy. And it's something that many more people will have to do when the Supreme Court overturns Roe v.ersus Wade any day now. Kristen's story shows us how anti-abortion policies, whether they come from doctors, from hospitals, or from the state, endanger pregnant people by leading to substandard care. So let's get back to the story. Kristen had just received devastating news at her 20-week ultrasound. She was diagnosed with anhydramnios. That means there's very little to no amniotic fluid surrounding the fetus. One expert told me that this is the most universally agreed-upon lethal fetal diagnosis, because without amniotic fluid, lungs can't develop. Kristen was told that there was a fetal surgery— that might have allowed her to continue the pregnancy. However, even if everything had gone perfectly, her baby still would have been born very sick.
1: Kind of my only option I had like shown to me at the time was to go to Cincinnati and get these procedures done to try to save him, which I was all for at the time because I just, I literally couldn't imagine this was happening to me. Looking back, I was naive. I just kind of was like, "Look." I'm going to go get these procedures. I'm going to save him, and he's going to be healthy, and it's going to be okay. And then when I got to Cincinnati, I kind of realized the severity of of his his situation. They told me, even if I had went through the the surgery, which that's the only way that he would have survived, if I had been able to go through that had no complications, he would have been in the NICU up in Cincinnati for at least six months, and that would have been with at least I think they said ten to twenty surgeries in his first year of life. Multiple doctor appointments, monthly doctor appointments back up in Cincinnati, even after his six month stay in the NICU. Like it would have been nonstop, and to put my three kids' life on hold for that, my my relationship with me and my fiance, my whole life, like it would have been turned upside down. And we're not wealthy. We're not. We don't have money to do those things, and I barely had money to go to Cincinnati those two times I did for the procedures. I mean, this was a struggle. Still, Kristen wanted
0: to try the fetal surgery, and she had several procedures done in preparation for it. But during one of those procedures, there were complications, and she ended up with bleeding that landed her in the ER. Afterward, the Cincinnati medical team told Kristen that she wouldn't be able to undergo surgery the following week as planned, They could have waited a few weeks and tried again, but by that point, doctors told Kristen that the chances of her delivering a baby that could survive were minimal. According to the American College of Obstetricians and Gynecologists, when a patient receives a potentially lethal fetal diagnosis, doctors should discuss all options with them. That includes terminating the pregnancy. But Kristen never got that kind of counseling in West Virginia. The doctors in Cincinnati, however, did talk to her about termination being an option. But abortion is banned at 22 weeks in Ohio, with exceptions only for life endangerment of the pregnant person. By this point, Kristen was 23 weeks pregnant, almost 24.
1: So it wasn't really put on the table as it kind of should have been, you know?
0: So Kristen went home to West Virginia to wait.
1: And his heart never stopped. Three weeks. Going every week, um, I had a doctor's appointment, an ultrasound, and my local OB to check his heart. B and it was still there. And just with every second that went on, I just was miserable, thinking like it was just a waiting game. I was just waiting for the shoe to drop, waiting, waiting for it to happen, and knowing he was suffering inside me. He was, he had no amniotic fluid. He was literally being squeezed to death. So I just couldn't take it anymore. And my um, OB's midwife. Suggested that I check out a clinic in DC, um, and I did, and I made an appointment.
0: The next available appointment was two weeks away, but about a week beforehand, Kristen started bleeding.
1: I ended up having these gushes of blood and these really sharp pains. After two days of having these, my my doctor um, admitted me to the hospital, wanting to monitor the bleeding. And when I got admitted, I was introduced to the only maternal fetal medicine doctor that my local hospital is affiliated with, um, Dr. Calhoun. He is nationally known as um, an anti-abortionist doctor. He immediately before even saying, hi, hello, how are you? He sat down and kind of assumed I was doing drugs or alcohol to cause all this. Um, he asked me what type of drugs I have been doing. And I was like, never done drugs. That is not the situation here. And it was just a very judgmental experience with him. He only wanted to treat my baby. He didn't care that he had no survival, um, no chance of survival. He didn't care that I was bleeding. He didn't care that I was in pain. All he wanted to do was give my baby magnesium and steroids to help better form his lungs and his brain, which that wouldn't have helped at all. So yeah, he wanted me to lay in that bed for weeks or months till it got bad enough for him to intervene.
0: Kristen's medical records confirm that she was tested for drugs. I asked the hospital whether this is standard for them, but they didn't give me an answer. Medical records also confirm that Dr. Calhoun recommended magnesium and steroids. These treatments are usually given in cases of preterm labor to boost a baby's chances of survival. Not in cases like Kristen's, when the fetus has been diagnosed with a fatal condition. I spoke with several other doctors while working on this episode, all of whom thought that these recommendations were very strange.
1: He said, "What questions do you have for me?" And I was like, "Well, I mean, I guess why I'm bleeding and having these pains." And that's when he suggested maybe I've been doing drugs and maybe that's why that this is happening to me. But when I said no, that that's not the case. Why do you think? that I'm bleeding and having these sharp pains, where is it coming from? And he said, well, if that's true, you're not doing drugs, then I would guess that it is your placenta separating from your uterus from the procedures you had done.
0: This condition is called placental abruption, and in severe cases, it can result in hemorrhage, a leading cause of pregnancy-related death.
1: Looking back, my life was 100% in danger. I could have hemorrhaged and died at any time, but according to him, I wasn't bleeding enough. That pain was not enough for him. The fact that he got to choose when enough was enough is terrifying to me.
0: Calhoun also told Kristen that she would need to have a C-section when it was eventually time for her to give birth. This, again, is unusual in a case like hers, because C-sections carry additional risk for the pregnant person, such as infections and blood clots. With a pregnancy that isn't viable to begin with, Most doctors would avoid creating more risk for the pregnant person if they could. Kristen was instead asking to have labor-induced and to give her baby comfort care. This is an option that had been described to her back in Cincinnati. It's essentially the infant version of palliative care. When a newborn has such significant health issues that it isn't likely to survive— Most neonatal intensive care units offer comfort care, where babies are treated with some interventions, like maybe oxygen and pain medication, but they aren't subjected to invasive treatments like surgery. He
1: said that I was requesting an abortion, and um, his beliefs did not align with that. Therefore, he would not be doing that. He just acted like there was nothing going on. Like, well, you're just bleeding just a little. And you're just going to sit here and wait and we're going to monitor you. And maybe in a couple months, we'll have the baby and try to save him. And I'm, I'm like, no, <laughs> I don't want my baby to go through any pain. He has no chance of survival. Like, I'm I'm literally just asking to hold him till he dies because there's no chance. If a team of MFM doctors up in Cincinnati said they couldn't save him at this rate and he has no chance of survival, what makes you think that you've Being one MFM doctor in a Troston, West Virginia hospital with no department specializing in this. What makes you think you're going to do that? It's like he wanted to make this a story for him, that he's the savior. And my life, my health, my baby did not matter to him whatsoever. It was about him. You know, he kind of told me that I was asking him to play God by me requesting to be induced and, and hold my baby till he died but isn't you getting my baby out and immediately rushing him away to do these procedures on him and putting tubes in him and all that? Isn't that saying God?
0: Kristen was 26 weeks pregnant at this point, and Calhoun also told her that the hospital would be required by law to provide intensive medical care for her baby if she went into labor. Is true that West Virginia has a law requiring that fetuses quote-unquote born alive as the result of an abortion be given medical care? Even pulsation of the umbilical cord before it has been cut is considered a sign of life under this law. But what the law actually says is that fetuses born as the result of an abortion must be given medical care comparable to what a fetus born spontaneously at that same gestational age would receive. And a whole team of specialists had already told Kristen that her baby could not survive. If he'd been born spontaneously, she and her fiancé would have had a choice over what interventions they did or didn't want. So it's not entirely clear to me that the hospital really was legally obligated to provide intensive care in this particular case. However, they didn't answer my questions about whether or not what Dr. Calhoun told Kristen is consistent with the hospital's interpretation of the law.
1: And um so I signed myself out and prayed I made it to DC the next week and I did. I don't know what would have happened because I could have stayed in Dr. Calhoun's care for weeks or months, just waiting. He said at the time I wasn't bleeding enough, and his, his words, his the quote that he said was, Until you start bleeding at a rate of a fountain of blood then I can't intervene with this C-section, So I could have been waiting there for who knows how long.
0: As Kristen mentioned, Dr. Calhoun is a nationally known anti-abortion figure. He's a former president of the American Association of Pro-Life Obstetricians and Gynecologists. And his public position is that abortion is never necessary to save the life of a pregnant person. This
2: doctor that I interviewed, he was a member of the American Association of Pro-Life OBGYNs. And he said, point blank, even among members of our group, you know, even among anti-abortion OBGYNs, this is an extreme position. That's Caroline Kitchener,
0: a political reporter for The Washington Post. Just about a month before Kristen encountered Dr. Calhoun, Caroline published an article about him.
2: Gosh, how long was it ago? Now, two and a half years ago, maybe. I have a friend who's an OB/GYN in rural Mississippi, or actually, she she was at the time, and she was telling me about her new job. And one thing that she mentioned was that she had been told not to, you know, really talk about abortion. And you know, if somebody was expressing interest in having an abortion, she was told to sort of, you know, change the subject or try to steer them away from that direction. And that just really got me thinking about the role that doctors play in abortion, that that OBGYNs play in, in terms of the conversations that they have with pregnant people. And I started wondering, you know, well, how many how many OBGYNs are personally opposed to abortion and how does that affect their care? And so I started digging and I I quite quickly found this large association, the the American Association of Pro-Life OBGYNs that has, you know, I believe over 4,000 members. And I started thinking about, you know, who are those people and and. What impact might they have on care for pregnant
0: people? One of the first things you'll find about Dr. Calhoun, if you do a little digging, is an incident from 2013 when he called up a former patient out of the blue and told her that when he treated her for some residual bleeding after an abortion a year before, he found a 13-week fetal skull inside her uterus. The woman had only been nine weeks pregnant at the time of her abortion.
2: He gave her the name and number of a prominent anti-abortion lawyer who worked for a conservative legal group. So that was that was pretty remarkable. Uh, doctors usually usually
0: don't do things like that. The woman did sue, but according to a pathology report from the hospital, Calhoun's own employer. There was never any evidence of a fetal skull. The lawsuit was dismissed. And the judge
2: was quite forceful in her statements, you know, calling it, I think she she called it remarkable that a doctor had taken this step to call a patient a whole year after and give them, like, legal advice in this way.
0: Around the same time, Calhoun sent a letter to West Virginia's state attorney general claiming that he was treating patients for complications from abortion, on a weekly basis. Once again, his own employer contradicted this, releasing data showing that the hospital had only treated two patients for abortion complications in the entire preceding year. It was clearly a campaign to try and shut down the state's only abortion clinic. But despite public outcry, Calhoun kept his job.
2: Yeah, there, there was a lot of pressure. There were, there were a lot of letters that were written by women in the community, by some abortion rights advocates urging the university to, you know, get him to, to resign. And they did say at one point that they were discussing the matter, and then nothing
0: came of it. In addition to his employment at Charleston Area Medical Center, the hospital where Kristen was treated, Dr. Calhoun is a professor at West Virginia University's Charleston campus.
2: He's been there since 2006. So every year, I want to say they've got about 10 10 residents per class. So that, that that adds up to be quite a quite a few people.
0: The fact that Calhoun was teaching other doctors is one of the things that Kristen found most disturbing about her experience.
1: A lot of the times that he was coming in to check on me and speak with me, um, he had a team of these student doctors coming in with him to my room that was training under him. And you could kind of see the looks on their faces. Like they were very shocked. They were looking at me with, like, compassion and, like, pretty much saying, like, they're sorry with their eyes.
0: This also stood out to Caroline when she was talking to former patients of Calhoun's, most of whom she found through infant obituaries and online reviews of medical care.
2: I was really struck by the power differential. This is a, you know, very important doctor in the capital city in West Virginia and they were traveling really long distances to get to him because he is, you know, the only specialist of his kind for, you know, hours in, in most directions. So they just weren't going to question him, you know, when they, when they talked about the things that he said, it was like, it was like God was saying them, right? You know, why would they ever question this specialist who's, you know, renowned in the state who holds a leadership position at West Virginia University.
0: Currently, 44 states ban abortion at some point in pregnancy, mostly between 20 and 24 weeks, though Oklahoma now bans abortion in almost all circumstances, and Texas bans abortion at six weeks. Many of these laws include some exceptions, but they're often very narrow and vaguely written, In West Virginia, abortion is banned at 22 weeks, but there is an exception for a quote-unquote non-medically viable fetus. A more sympathetic doctor might have advocated for Kristen and tried to get her the abortion she needed, but even then they might not have been successful. Many institutions have their own anti-abortion policies, independent of state law. A 2020 study found that 57% of teaching hospitals, mostly concentrated in the South and Midwest, limited abortion above and beyond what state law required. And some hospitals limit abortion care because of religious doctrine. To learn more about that, I spoke with Dr. Deborah Stolberg.
3: I am a family physician, and I also conduct research through my faculty role at the University of Chicago, and my research focuses on reproductive health service delivery in the United States.
0: Much of Dr. Stolberg's research has looked at Catholic hospitals and how they limit access to all kinds of reproductive health care, including birth control, in vitro fertilization, surrogacy, abortion, and more.
3: Health care providers who work in a Catholic facility are required to follow something called the ethical and religious directives for Catholic healthcare services. These directives are written by the U.S. Conference of Catholic Bishops and the Conference of Bishops reviews and revises them every few years. And as a general rule, you are required to follow these. It's a term of your contract if you are working there as a doctor or a nurse. It is, if you're, let's say you're a doctor who has a private practice and you rent space from a building that's owned by a Catholic organization, a Catholic health system or Catholic hospital, it can be a term in your lease for your office space. If you have a practice that is independent, but you have, say, admitting privileges at the hospital, you're required to sign that you'll follow it as a term of privileges. So there's a whole section on... Reproductive care, they call it care at the beginning of life. And a lot of it is things that cannot be done. So, for example, people who work in a Catholic facility, it says, may not promote or condone contraceptive practices other than. Natural Family Planning for Married Couples, by which they mean heterosexual married couples. And of course, you cannot provide an abortion, and it goes into some detail about defining abortion, and specifically the situations in which what we might often not call abortion— are also not allowed. So for example, an area of my research has included ectopic pregnancy where the embryo implants outside of the uterus, which can be life-threatening to the pregnant person and is not a viable pregnancy. There's no way that the embryo or fetus can survive to term. And the directives, the Catholic directives say that you can't do anything that constitutes a direct abortion. And then there's a a little bit, but not a great degree of detail defining direct abortion. And then they also have another directive about when a treatment can be provided that might bring about the end of a pregnancy that might, that might take fetal life if the pregnant woman, I think they say, has a proportionally serious pathological condition, a proportionally serious disease that you're treating. So. There's a little bit of a, a gray area around a specific type of exception, but they this prohibition on abortion is invoked very broadly to prevent treatment of a, of a number of pregnancy complications.
0: In practice, these directives force doctors to delay care in emergency situations. And they're also vague, which leads to a lot of confusion for both doctors and patients.
3: So 97% of ectopic pregnancies develop in the fallopian tube. It's pretty commonly accepted nowadays in Catholic bioethics that you can remove the fallopian tube with the embryo inside. And this really, it's an indirect abortion. But what you can't do in some interpretations are the less invasive treatments, the what we call tube sparing, where the woman would then be able to, you know, keep that fallopian tube. And those are where there's some debate. So specifically the use of the medication, methotrexate, which spares a woman from having to have surgery, is Considered by some to be a direct abortion and by others not. I learned about this, I should say, because the hospital where I did my residency got taken over by a Catholic system. And there was a patient with an ectopic pregnancy shortly after the hospital was taken over and the doctor on call had gone through the training on the ethical and religious directives and had understood, okay, we can't use methotrexate in this situation and recommended that the patient leave and go to a different hospital and get Treatment, So leave untreated because the doctor thought like that's going to be the best thing for you because this methotrexate treatment really would be best. So it really it, it leaves a lot of ambiguity and confusion, which often is not good
0: for patients. Because of the rapid pace of mergers and acquisitions, one in six hospital beds in the United States is now in a Catholic facility. But a lot of people don't realize that they could encounter these restrictions at their local hospital.
3: A lot of our research has really turned up both a great degree of frustration and moral distress on the part of providers who want to do the best things for their patients and are navigating these convoluted directives that are not based on medically what's best for the patient. And we've found very confusing for patients, and most patients don't know to expect most restrictions in Catholic facilities, and many, many people who, who go to Catholic hospitals don't know the hospital is Catholic, but specifically, who would ever think, you know, if— I'm pregnant and my bag of water ruptures at 14 weeks. Will this Catholic hospital consider that an abortion or not? It's just not something, you know, any of us really think about in day-to-day life and then you're suddenly in this situation and you have to navigate is you know can i can i get this treatment and sometimes patients aren't even told that a treatment e- even is an option they're just told we have to watch and wait and see what happens if you get really sick we'll do something but right now your your baby still has a heartbeat and, and so we're going to just watch and wait and let nature take its course when in fact there would be other treatments available
0: the directives are written and interpreted by catholic bishops who aren't medical professionals and they also prioritize catholic doctrine over the personal, moral, and religious beliefs of patients.
3: They bring their own beliefs and values into this situation, one of which for many people is, I have children at home that need their mom. And even though this baby that I'm carrying, I very much wanted and hoped to carry to term, I'm not going to leave my children at home motherless. And so right now you need to do whatever is necessary to take care of me. And that is not valued. That is not heard when the fetus is given equal value by somebody else. Not that patient, not that doctor. It's a deeply reasoned decision in the context of a very specific personal situation. And it's often just superseded by this document written by a group of men sitting around the table and very removed. I often say the bishops aren't doctors, they're not nurses, but they're not even hospital executives. They're not people who have to even deal with the consequences of these policies that they make. Time and again, we hear stories from doctors who have gone pleading to ethics committees. Is this woman sick enough? Can I do this now? And what is so frustrating to them is, why are we sitting here around a table talking about a sick woman whose illness we could have prevented a week ago or three days ago when she came in? And now we're we're begging for the right to start the Pitocin and, and you know, expedite the end of this pregnancy.
0: It was exactly this kind of delay that led to the death of Savita Halapanavar in Ireland. Savita died in 2012, after having a miscarriage at 17 weeks. Doctors knew her pregnancy wasn't viable, but at the time, abortion was illegal in Ireland. The fetus still had a heartbeat, so doctors felt they had to wait for it to stop. By the time that happened, Savita had developed a severe infection. She didn't survive. Her death became a catalyst in the movement for legal abortion in Ireland, which eventually succeeded in 2018. You may have heard stories from the pre-Roe v. Wade days here in the U.S. about hospital committees that would determine whether or not someone was sick enough to need an abortion. But the thing is, these committees never went away. And they're not just operating at Catholic hospitals. Many Protestant and secular hospitals, especially in the South, still refuse to perform most abortions and often rely on committees to determine when an abortion is medically indicated. And abortion bans, whether they come from a facility or from the state, make doctors hesitate to deliver life-saving care. Already seeing this in Texas, where there have been many reports of doctors hesitating to treat ectopic pregnancies since the six week abortion ban went into effect. And when the Supreme Court overturns or guts Roe v. Wade, abortion is expected to be banned in about half of the country. Many people will likely have safe illegal abortions thanks to abortion pills. That's one thing that is very different from the pre Roe days. But some people will need abortions in clinics or in hospitals. And like Kristen, they'll have to travel long distances to get that
4: help. Just from Texas, the ripples throughout the country are huge. We're seeing patients here, well, we're seeing some patients from Texas, but we're also seeing patients who can't get appointments in their state surrounding Texas because the Texas patients are taking all those appointments. It's really going to. It's going to be tough for patients.
0: That's Dr. Matthew Reeves, the executive director of DuPont Clinic, where Kristen eventually got her abortion. While DuPont Clinic doesn't require any particular reason for patients to be seen there, they do get a lot of patients
4: like Kristen. It's a long, painful road for a lot of our patients. And they've been through a lot by the time they get to us. That's something we keep in mind and something we hear about from a lot of our patients. And it leaves a lot of them Devastated and also feeling just like nothing is going right, it really leaves them in a, a tough place when they come to us. They come very scared that more things are going to go wrong, especially when they you know they've had a fetal surgery procedure that's just gone wrong.
0: Washington D.C. is one of the few places in the country with no gestational age limits on abortion care. So many people who need abortions later in pregnancy travel there, especially from the southeastern United States.
4: A big part of the reason why. I started the DuPont Clinic. I was working at Planned Parenthood here. And when I started, I was one of two docs. The medical director and I would alternate days doing the later procedures. And there were only the two of us. And we had to coordinate it to make sure somebody was always around. And then we had a training program here in D.C. And we trained more docs. And then there were four of us. And we're in a a great place, legally speaking, and, and politically and just a supportive area to provide later care because Planned Parenthood only went up to 20 weeks, but there's very good laws in D.C., and there's a need for uh, later care. So I opened the DuPont Clinic to to fill that need, and it's grown very quickly.
0: Many of the clinic's patients are traveling significant distances to get there.
4: At least half come from more than 100 miles away. Very safely, more than half. Sometimes it's 70, 80 percent, some weeks.
0: Even if we made radical change and removed all of the policies and practical challenges that delay access to abortion, many fetal conditions, as in Kristen's case, can't be diagnosed until late in the second trimester or well into the third. There will always be people who will need later abortions because of serious health issues.
4: We see a lot of patients who are pretty vehemently against abortion. But the thing that the dialogue about abortion leaves out is all the reasons people want abortions. And I don't think most people who are against abortion think about that one of those reasons might happen to them.
0: It's a myth that people only have later abortions because of health issues. In the turnaway study, which we covered back in Episode 7, 94% of people who had abortions at or after 20 weeks experienced some kind of delay in accessing care. So if that's already the case, we know that once Roe is gone, later abortion will become much more common. And there will be more people like Kristen who experience a cascading series of delays and denials of care, all while their health worsens.
1: I mean, it was so hard. I had to call around and get the funding and because I don't have that money laying around. And the fact that I literally just wanted to, first of all, like I was in a physical state where I could have died. And I still had to go through waiting days and traveling six hours to get the, the healthcare that I needed. At the time, like the cars that we had, they, or not trustworthy to drive that far. And so we had to rent cars. I mean, there was there was a lot of financial obstacles that we had to face. And that was just the start of everything. It was just, it was very, very hard, not only mentally, like physically on me, um, going through all this with three kids, um, a fiance who works all the time and trying to find childcare and just dealing with everyday life. Through this horrible, horrible situation that had been put in, I was still bleeding. I was still having these gushes of blood every three hours. I was still having these pains that would come and go. And
0: Fortunately, Kristen did make it to the clinic, and it was the first place she felt really cared for.
1: And When I got there at the DuPont Clinic, they were the sweetest, most compassionate people that I had ever met. Um. Uh, Literally, it was the worst time in my life. I was so sad. Um, but they were, I'm sorry, makes me emotional. Um, but I was really in just, um, ama- like, I was amazed at how this doula, this nurse, this doctor, they were all just so apologetic as to what I had went through and what I had experienced. And they were the nicest people. And they made me feel it, the worst experience of my life. They made me feel on some level, some type of comfort. So I'm very, very grateful to them. And I'm grateful for that clinic. And another thing that stood out to me when I did get there and I had to have an ultrasound, um, that doctor had, had, he reassured me and told me that the um, fetal bladder outlet obstruction of what my son had, that's a really big reason as to why they see patients. And, um, but he said, your son kidney is the biggest that I had ever seen and just kind of let me know how severe his case truly was and the fact that Dr. Calhoun and in West Virginia didn't see that and didn't care and didn't see the the physical state health state that I was in personally putting all these things together he was like there's no reason why he should have put it off any any other minute I mean it's still on my mind all the time I basically had to grieve the loss of my son so it's still really hard but um I'm getting through it and I just I think the only thing that really gets me through is knowing that I made the right decision for him and that in turn was the right decision for me as well
0: for the nation I wrote a version of Kristen's story that delves deeper into what her experiences tell us about our post row future and why people have abortions in the third trimester. You can find that link in the show notes, and I'll leave the last word to her. Thank you, Kristen.
1: The only thing that I wish that I would have had would have been someone to pretty much tell me, like, whatever decision that you make is okay. Think about yourself. Think about how it, it impacts your life. And the people around you's life, because I didn't have that in West Virginia. I think if anybody's going through a, a similar situation like this or just any situation involving abortion, think about what's best for you. And don't worry about what other people have to say. And just know that if you make it to the other side of whatever situation you're going through, that, I mean, it'll be okay. And you basically have another shot at life going through this and making it to the other side and going through all these health obstacles and everything else I feel like I have another shot you know like I can be the best mom I can to my three kids I can I can be there in ways that I would have never been able to if I didn't have access to abortion I'm just I'm just thankful
0: Access is produced by me, Garnet Henderson. Our logo is by Kate Ryan, and our theme music is by Lily Sloan. Remember, Access is an independent production that relies on listener support. If you can do one thing to support the show, you'll make a big difference for us. You can donate or buy merch, and those links are in the show notes, or just share the show with your friends. Follow us on Twitter and Instagram at AccessPod. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts and leave us a rating or review. And transcripts are on the way on our website, apodcastaboutabortion.com. See you next time.